Hey, this is Louisiana Sister Squad podcast, where we bring you real information to enhance your truther lifestyle. I'm Katie. And I'm Tammy. Welcome Welcome to to the the show. Hi, I'm Jill Hines, co-director of Health Freedom Louisiana, a consumer and human rights advocacy organization. We fight for your right to say no to an unwanted medical intervention, and we'd like for you to fight with us. Find us at healthfreedomla.org and sign up for our Substack, and let's be in touch. Hey, we hope you're enjoying the show. Do you have a question for our podcast guest? We got you covered. Your opportunity to speak directly with our podcast guest awaits. Join us on the Uncensored Platform Telegram. Link in bio. Now back to the show. Hey, thanks for checking out part two. This is Questions and Answers with Nick. On our previous episode, we discussed primatology, the history of AIDS, and a plethora of dark science information. I hope you enjoy this Q&A portion. Leave us a comment below and let us know how you liked this episode. Without further ado, welcome to part two. I think that was an excellent presentation. Let me just say that first and foremost. And I think it painted a very clear picture of just, I'm going to be honest, nefarious behavior. One thing in particular was uh, the primate blood just going directly into a human with no filter. That sounds horrifying to me. Um, But to do it in the name of science, this is not the first time and definitely won't be the last. You're talking about the work that was done at the uh, Cold Spring Harbor. If I'm not mistaken, that was where um, they had a a eugenics lab prior to that. It's the birthplace. It's the origin of the American Eugenics Society. It was the first building erected on that campus. And now... It's the scientific lens for all technical public, you know, technical publications. The pre-press channel is Cold Spring Harbor Labs. Very interesting that 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 group, um, which which after the war, they had to put that banner away, just like if there were any, you know, American Nazi supporters, they had to put those flags away during the war. Um and people that were involved in eugenics research transitioned into different fields. One of them was molecular biology. The other was genetics. It was such a huge scandal, um, you know, them having the the Nazi scientists working there and everything under eugenics. I, I just, I don't know why, if I just missed that part or fell asleep during the continuation of the documentary I was watching on that as to, I just assumed that it was closed, but here, here I am. I never looked back um, to find out that it's it's still very much in use. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of like, so, so, you know, we hear, we have this new word that I kind of like, it's called memory hole. Uh, (laughs) um, The other, you know, other ways to say that is just lost to history. People just have no idea. They see the cold spring, Harbor Labs logo on all of these these medical papers that are in the process of peer review. And they send them around and nobody generally stops to say, what's wrong about, you know, what what's out of sorts here? Um, 
the scientists from the beginning of the 20th century are gone. Dr. Davenport, you know, the original uh, crusader about eugenics in the United States is long gone, but the facility lives on. And the sort of demilitarized scientific and policy discussions that occur there outside of the watchful eyes of, say, a national intelligence health um, or NIH, uh, say, a, a, a meeting room that has recorded Cisco feeds and cameras and, you know, there's where there's essentially an electronic record. People can go to Cold Spring Harbor and just gather in a room and have a conversation free from prying eyes, including those at the Defense Department, as well as any other place where there might be um, evidence of something that's untoward. It's either really not in the best interest of public health, uh, learning about a major gaffe in public health, like the SV40 debacle, and pretending that it's not a problem and just sweeping it under the rug, while in the background, the cancer industry spins up. That's the kind of, you know, those are the kinds of events that if we could, if we could be a fly on the wall and be in, you know, all of those key discussions at, at Cold Spring Harbor, that would be, I think, quite informative. When you talked about they were transporting from uh, Central Africa to the United States, and you said it's what it's now known as like gain of function, it had a different name at this time, but this was in the 60s. Do you know if there was a secure chain of command during that time frame for um, these viruses and blood and, you know, maybe even animal parts or body parts or anything like that? Like, was that a secure process in the 60s? Um, so there's two different pieces to that. One is the I'll answer. The first is the known. Yes, there was a great there. That was the whole purpose of having these primate. Uh, uh, these regional primate centers like the Zirzi's primate center or the primate center, you know, that uh, Tulane uses. That's the one that intersects with Ed Hoslam's book. <clears throat> the known things that were shared, as far as I can see, went through a standard protocol of scientific request. So if you are a lab and you were at MIT or New York University or University of Washington or UCLA, I'm naming schools that are named in this program, right? These are not just off the top of my head. These are, these are te you know, scientific teams that had a contract at some point in the SVCP. They could <clears throat> contact the primate supplier or any number of other types of laboratory, cell culture, or virus uh, reservoir virus library uh, companies or or partners and order a sample of something it might be a monkey hand a monkey brain <clears throat> it might be pureed uh, chimpanzee uh, kidney cell culture it might be an isolated specific virus or pathogen uh, you know there's there's a number of names for what I'm going to say are pathogens right RNA viruses, DNA viruses, macrophage, uh, you know, capable things that can transit macrophages. Uh, they're called pleomorphic bacteria. There's, there's a whole, whole Brady bunch of different things, but they were all in catalogs and these different 
academic or research teams could contact the suppliers. And, uh, you know, I would assume that there was a, a set number of points that they were allowed to distribute to. I don't see anything describing security practices um, in these annual reports. But remember that those were written to federal and scientific leadership. So they they were generally, you know, so a team like that Gallo team would generally like write a one to three page report to summarize all of their findings from a year, from the previous year. They didn't include their logistics, the laboratory details, you know, what temperature was it? What was the salinity? What was the pH of that particular additive? All They, they leave all of that out. Um, it's not like the peer review papers that you would look at today when someone's arguing about the furin cleavage site in coronavirus 19. Um, these, these were very, very high level. So that's the known part. Okay. The unknown part is a whole nother area of focus and study, and that's unknown contamination in cell culture. The ATCC, <clears throat> the American Tissue Culture Collection in Sausalito, California, was a federal hub for many, many, many samples, as we've been discussing, all the different types, viruses and cells. They also had a great number of contamination events, among them HELA, the H-E-L-A, Henrietta Lacks, virulent cancer cells that contaminated all kinds of work around the world during this era. That's why I say the unknown component, uh, when you say, was there biosecurity? Was there you know, a chain of command? Great questions. Um, but even if there was, if they're shipping contaminated cell culture and thereby contaminating other labs, whole facilities sometimes, uh, depending upon what sort of a contaminant it was and what their practices were, what BSL level they were, all of that. Uh, there was a whole lot of sloppy science that continued not just from the 50s. It went on into, you know, uh, probably the 90s where they were finding contamination problems that were unanticipated. They called it non-target pathogens that they would find as a result of that kind of a slip up. Okay, good to know. Um, I did have one more question from way back in the beginning is when you talked about the findings in the polio vaccine slightly, if you could kind of recap what was that when they're fine, they found what inside of the polio vaccine, if you could just kind of briefly re-explain that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Sure thing. So from that era to today, there is one primary channel for the development of a vaccine product, and that's to grow a target pathogen like poliomyelitis, the virus that causes polio on a cellular substrate, that dirt analogy that I described. What happened in the Cutter incident in 1955 was that in the course of producing the current, the then current uh, formula for polio vaccine, there was a contamination event at the Cutter Labs facility in Berkeley. And as the result of failing to inactivate that seed virus, that poliomyelitis that they had put, because you have to put live virus 
into the substrate in order for it to propagate, right? You have to have a living couple to make more copies. Not, not that it's a, not that it's a, you know, a binary reproductive model, but you get what I'm saying is you've got to have living virus to make more virus. So they would grow it out till it was at a high concentration and then they would quote unquote kill it. Um, this was done with a number of chemical washes. One of them that was the bench standard for a number of products for a great deal of time was formalin. And it's a version of formaldehyde. They would then take the, the, the paste, the, the, the killed vaccine. They would centrifuge it, which allows heavier cell and debris material to separate completely from the target a virus that they wanted, the killed, quote unquote, killed virus, then they would take that mono layer, that special little band out of the centrifuge process and put that into vials. And that was the product. So the problem was with the cutter incident is that they didn't effectively kill the live polio virus that they put in when they made the product. And that has happened in a number of cases. Um, the, the cutter incident was very pronounced because it went right to the press and there wasn't really a good apparatus to shut the, the story down. So that's why it became a big thing. And it triggered that new race between Sabine, Dr. Sabine and Dr. Kaprowski. And Kaprowski's race ended in the Belgian Congo in the late, in the late 1950s. This is a whole lot of heavy public health and defense and subterfuge. This is, these are some black pills. Um, and I just really encourage people to uh, take what they can from it. I began this path as a 100% denier. I didn't buy any of this because I hadn't applied myself to any of the readily available evidence that is quite stark. It's quite detailed. It substantiates all of this unfortunate history. Um, and I think that the most important piece out of this isn't that we're going to fix HIV. That, that horse left the barn 40 years ago. Hopefully, through what occurred with the sort of privatized, camouflaged biowarfare work that turned into the HIV disaster, we can then trace from there forward to today and hopefully see the parallels in how this seemed to have occurred again with coronavirus 19. Um, I did watch an article, not read an article. I watched an article um, about a woman um, who was cured from HIV and AIDS. And she was the third person, but I believe the first woman. And that was through uh, stem cells, umbilical cord stem cells. But they also had mentioned she was on a bunch of um, antivirals and things like that. Do you think that we're still um, on track to provide any kind of cure for AIDS through through that research and treatment. Um, I was uh, 13 years old when Dr. Gallo stood up at that podium and was named as the discoverer of HIV, which was a lie. Uh, he perjured himself, and there was a multi-year fight behind the curtains that President Reagan had to finally referee and intervene with between the NIH, the NCI, Gallo, basically, and the Pasteur Institute, and Montagnier Barr, the team that actually discovered HIV. Um, but I think that, um, you know, coming back to your question, um, I think that there was a great deal of 
posturing. And uh, when I saw them say, oh, there's going to be a vaccine in hopefully just under a year, that was the quote, in 1983. That's what the NIH tried to promise. Oh, we, we think that we'll be able to find a vaccine hopefully in, in less than a year. And it's turned into a multi-billion dollar global industry to kick the can on HIV. There have been vaccine trials. If you go and study what happened to the people that tried the HIV vaccines, you'll find that many of them resulted in ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement, or a increased, you know, a, a worse reaction when they encountered HIV and got AIDS. It was a worse case than they would have if they just left their immune system alone. And that's happened in a number of vaccine trials and experimental trials. Um, so uh, I don't, I don't have any reason to believe that the apparatus that makes its living, I mean, there are people who are absolutely career HIV scientists that it would evaporate if there was a cure, just like the cancer cures that I've seen hidden in history, just in the 20th century that were suppressed by the AMA. Uh, no, I think there's a vested interest in these mechanics uh, financial being obviously probably the, the, the number one, we don't want to upset our apple cart. We certainly don't want to let a, let a cure out there that people could grow in their yards or that they could get for a very, very cheap amount, um, when we need them to develop cancer so that we can do surgery, chemotherapy, irradiation. Those are the tenets of the Rockefeller cancer model that they wanted and they got. And they, and they guard very carefully. So no, I have a very, very skeptical outlook on a cure coming through mainstream medicine because too many people would lose their jobs if that happened. You know, we had a choice when all of this came about to say, you know, for the government to invest their research and it's why it's one or the other. <laughs> Just from a basic perspective, you can either pick therapeutics or a vaccine, and we chose a vaccine. We did the same thing for the you know most recent event. I guess it's it's one or the other for them to pick the vaccine, so that way they're going to perpetuate and continue you know the money machine that is you know this medical and science industry. There, no one gets paid off of a a very simple therapeutic cure. So, I definitely see your point. I try to look for the silver lining in so many things. So seeing that one story out of all the um, information I was trying to catch up on, I was like, oh, you know, that's great. But then also, is that going to be allowed? They'll probably say that that's more um, dangerous than, you know, the alternative. I am very much an integrated medicine patient. I'm uh, very, very uh, happy for all of the diagnostic and procedural capabilities that allopathy or Western medicine offers us. I do not think that allopathy um, is interested in um, clearing and maintaining homeostasis in the human population. Allopathy is interested in sustaining symptoms with reactive therapeutics that do not solve the underlying imbalances or problems with our homeostasis. So um, 
as much as I say skeptical things about um, uh, Western science, I, I think that there are, I, I'm, I'm definitely on the bridge between uh, integrated medicine and Western medicine. Um, if I break my leg, I, I you know, I, I'm going to go to a hospital or go to the doctor and get it set and get a cast. You know, that's the, I, I, you know, I think that's fantastic application of, of um, a functional fix for something that my body will then heal. And this aids in the process. And, you know, that's fine with all of this experimental gobbledygook and gene therapies and our mRNAs that are now, I think they're trying to just let them bypass and go right to market without human trials. Um, that's where I have to go back and look at Henry Kissinger's paper. And you will see, you'll see what they were looking forward to do. And you can be the judge for yourself as to whether or not those things are actually now operationalized practices in public health, in policy, in controls, things like that. But I'm very, I'm very optimistic. It's why I do this. I am not here to bring people down, even though this is the most horrible thing to hear in the world. I'm here to tell you I survived. And I was a little kid, you know, I wasn't really at that high risk point in the bell curve of AIDS deaths early on. I was just too young. I wasn't sexually active. So I'm here to make sure that these wonderful researchers, lettered scientists like Dr. Alan Cantwell, who was my personal colleague, and Dr. Gerald Myers, who did the DNA work and talked about the big bang of HIV in the mid to late 70s. And Dr. Len Horowitz, who wrote probably the single best uh, piece on HIV and all of these topics that I've touched on. He wrote Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola. Amazing. You can have it on PDF. Uh, you can have it, you know, in your fingertips in, in minutes. It's a really difficult thing to face. Because if you are going to be legitimate and go and look up the references, none of them go to a 4chan or an 8chan. None of them tie back to a meme. None of them tie back to a WikiLeaks, which could be a potential false source of data, misinformation. It all ties back to stuff that's embedded. It's etched in the marble walls in the halls of science and in the U.S. Congress. It's indelible. So that's why it's so damning is that, you know, he says, here's the thesis, you know, here's the hypothesis. Here's the evidence. Go and check for yourself. And the more you dig, you don't find a little piece of pottery in the dirt suggesting that there might have been a civilization there. You find an entire city carved in stone. And the more you dig, the more buildings and structures you'll unearth. You dig as far as you want. Um, but I think that it's also very important for people to take away these kind of side channels of this rabbit hole that I brought up. Autoimmune conditions seem to be tied in with this overall narrative and a, and sort of a synergy between the NIH and the World Health Organization. Also, cancer. And I think that we need to go back to this evidence and whoever is still alive, hold them accountable. And if the institutions are still guarding themselves and trying to pretend that this was all good science, we need to take those institutions to task and remove people who are not willing to go by the underlying tenet of first do no harm. Our NIH, CDC are not here to serve the errant whims and the unfortunate dark, uh, you know, end of the world scenarios 
of the defense intelligence communities. We know there are people in there that are just stuck in that worldview. It's, it's, it's an unfortunate side effect, but they should not be at the helm or in, in the side channels or the person whispering in the ear of those in charge of our national health apparatus. That's where we need to get in there with a pick and a shovel and, you know, send our defense folks back to the Pentagon. They can leave Maryland. Thank you very much. Get back to defense work, and we need better oversight in our national health apparatus. I definitely agree, and I do hope that we see, um, like you said, but I hope we see change, and I hope we see um, justice uh, for what these people have done and inflicted upon us. And like I said, the name of you know this dark science. I think that's an excellent point. I want to talk really quickly about today. Do you think that we'll see accountability in the next couple of years for Dr. Fauci's role, whether it be um, from AIDS or the current event? What Fauci did with AZT was just repeated with remdesivir. And that is a parallel case study that's going to come back to bite his butt. There are amazing, incredible, uh, both lettered scientists and citizen scientists uh, who are right now, they've got all of the data. They, they've got everything that would be needed for discovery of a number of major cases against parties who comported, who played along with the Kabuki theater of, I was just following orders. I think Pfizer just played that card. They tried to say, oh, we delivered the defective vaccine product that your government ordered and tried to excuse themselves from culpability. Um, I do think that there's going to be fights all over the world. And this big, deep, dark web of intrigue that I've been getting at with Kissinger and depopulation and eugenics, that is baked into the World Economic Forum, to the World Health Organization, to the FAO, which is a component of the UN that's trying to tell us what we can and can't order as far as supplements. They're trying to control whether you can have gardens and what you can grow in your garden, whether you can collect rainwater, that kind of stuff. Um, so they're, they're, it's an all-out war, and we need to drag all of it out into the sunlight and let the vampires burn. That's that's what it's going to take because they've they've laid down their evidence behind them. They didn't do it. There there are people who we won't catch. There are, I'm sure, oligarchs and big pieces of this this uh, panel that will never that have never been named. They weren't on a Bilderberg guest list. They weren't listed at Davos. They weren't a featured speaker at the Council of Foreign Relations, a a place that is deep purple. It doesn't matter what stripe you are. It doesn't matter what kind of games you play about left, right, blue, red, counterculture, this, that. People who get to the Council on Foreign Relations are serving their own, um, we'll say, elevated agenda. And they, as I've heard described, are the executive branch of the CIA. And if you think about people who were in elected positions that we thought we got rid of, and they quietly joined a little club called the Council on Foreign Relations and have been influencing defense and geopolitics policies for decades that has the CIA at their behest. That's one of those places where we need to put a splitting all right in the middle and yeah, you know, cut that thing, cut that log right open and break it up into quarters and burn that shit. 
because um, we need to remove the deep state. And I, I don't think there's any culpable, single culpable group. There's about three or four that seem to have a storefront. And we don't really know what they do on the backside until they show up as guests at these other questionable, dubious globalist events. That's where, you know, I don't, I have never gone to the conspiracy theorists. I never went out to read bulletin boards and just try to go up for little bits and pieces of information and throw rocks at, you know, this person or that person. There was a time when I threw rocks at Trump. There was a time when I threw rocks at Obama and Bush and Clinton, you know, in my own way for my own reasons. But really, when it comes down to what is the fix, we know the institutions that we've got to shine this light on and we have to put positive public pressure on it. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid we're going to get guillotines out and we're going to disappoint them by simply dismantling their, you know, their insane ideas and their plans and showing everybody how it was all wired together and hopefully guarding against that kind of stuff from happening again. That was one thing I was going to ask you is what do you think is the, but let me re-ask just so you could speak directly to our audience for sure. the people that don't have, um, you know, this, this deep dive scientific um, background or have honed in on one thing, but the people like me that know that there's um, these evil operations, you know, at play, what is your best advice for us? What can we do to support that movement of shining the light? on the vampires as you so nicely put it uh you're gonna have to turn off the television you're going to have to stop letting other people be the lens for your interpretation like right now i will challenge anyone in the next few days or years that ever hears this conversation or sees this 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 data not to believe me because i sound so headstrong about it or that i seem convincing I challenge you to learn how to dig and validate things for yourself and that you be a better investigator as a citizen, that you understand how to read. What is the law? Just what is the basic law? Because the law has to be written in language, even though it can be roundabout and we say legalese. Still, it has to comport and express precisely the things that we have the rights and the things that have been taken away from us or that rights of other groups or situations that if they kick in, they get to sort of preempt all of our programming, all of our rights. And they say, oh, well, we're in an emergency situation. So we know you like that First and Second Amendment. But right now that's suspended. Those are the kind of things that any of us can explore and examine. And I think the best approach is on a state level fortify your state. Don't worry about your partner states. If you have an opportunity, if you have a reach and an influence, sure, share your path, share your tools, uh, what you're learning through the process. All of that is good, but it's really about the specifics of what happens in your state. And what I'm talking about, about particular throwing a monkey wrench, which I like, monk, we're going to throw a monkey wrench in, in you know these mechanics, uh, is to Make sure that things in your state have to comport with common sense safety testing. Like there will be no 
use of a compulsory vaccination in our state. Look for states that are setting laws up or doing proposing bills like that. Get your hand on it. Find out who is doing it in your state and be a force multiplier. If you're an amazing legal mind, find people that can help you with the analysis and the aggregation work and be that center and aggregate together and be effective as a group if you are a helper find those find those leaders find you know the little nonprofit or whatever across social media go into spaces on twitter into these places where they're discussing vaccine injuries and recovering from vaccine injuries and recovering from COVID where they're finally frontline providers are being allowed to speak the truth. Go in there and ask the question in a tweet or get a microphone and talk about your experience and ask how you can get involved. How do I find out about this in Louisiana? I want to do this in Texas. How can I help? Who's doing it? It won't take long. That's really the most important thing for you to do is to build a wall of common sense around your state legislature because states' rights really are, you know, that's where, that's where it comes to bear. And if you've got a governor like California or Washington, and I know there are others, um, that has been, um, an acolyte of the World Economic Forum, the WEF, that's the shiny, clean, uh, what do they say? Renewable, sustainable brand for all of this madness. So get them the hell out of office, vote them out and just focus on their activities in the WEF and keep magnifying that and talk about the practical risks of having that kind of a leader in any position above, say, you know, local dog catcher. They can, ta- they can catch dogs. That's fine. But, uh, you know, beyond that, that, those are the practical approaches that don't involve you becoming a scientist or buying a huge stack of books or reading the thousands and thousands of pages about, um, you know, HIV and cancer that I've talked about or about uh, COVID. You don't have to to walk that path. Other people have done it. Um, Find how you can be a force multiplier and start spreading practical, grounded arguments to defend your right as a citizen in your state to keep from being mowed over by some kind of emergency World Health Organization policy that, that gets instated. You don't want that. You want to veto that. Yes. I have been lucky to find um, Health Freedom Louisiana. Um, it's an amazing organization, and they they do everything that you just described. They are a team. They uh, they show up at meetings. Um, they're involved with looking at legislation. They're involved with the attorney state general. Um, they're, they're local Congress people and, and just everything. I did an interview with her and I mean, she's just awesome. She's awesome for the work she's doing. I'm so grateful for her and the organization. Um, I feel truly dishonored that I was able to have an interview with her. And I feel even more lucky to know that there is a team of people that I can support that are doing exactly that. And I just from following her, I've found a few other groups that are similar in other states. And so um, I will always try to put resources mentioned. 
um, in the link description. And I tried to put her um, in, in everybody's podcast link, to be honest with you, because I think she just um, deserves to be held out there. I run a commercial for her every podcast as well. Um, absolutely for free. I, you know, I would never ask for anything to just be promoting such a great organization, um, which is, you know, the perks of having your own podcast that you could do what you want. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I would encourage you to pressure them positively, you know, positive, positive pressure to help uh, find and, and establish that network. So anybody can be a node, right? They all know who the partner is in, in all of the adjoining states, uh, you know, just in all of the states. Let's make a list. We know that they're going to come under fire. We know that people are going to get targeted. There's going to be attacks on medical licenses. There's going to be attacks on credibility. There's going to be all kinds of really amazing razzle-dazzle counterintelligence which is sponsored, I would assume, primarily by pharmaceutical companies. Think of them as um, freelance marketers or um, uh, in the wild lobbyists, people that are out there with their social media or their media accounts, people at at media outlets, and I'm not going to name them. There are so many that are all owned by pharma. You don't have to, you know, you can just throw a rock and hit one. And there will be people who are putting out counter arguments to the common sense things that we're trying to do as citizens. And they're going to try to encourage people to just tip over into that madness um, for arguments like it's just easier. It's for the greater good. You'll get a $50 coupon. If you give us your medical data, John, you know, sign up now. There's going to be all kinds of alluring stuff, sort of the, the, the siren song to bring you to that thinking. Watch for it guard against it, expect it, and and anticipate how you're just going to deflect it quite credibly, quite calmly, and with evidence. That's all you've got to do to dispel counterintelligence. Because if you know you're right, if you know that you're a family that didn't take vaccines, and you can account for the anecdotal data points of everyone's health, and you can compare to a family across the street, that took one, two, three, four, five. I don't know how many people are up to now. I think it's up to five with the booster waves. Uh, and they have a catalog of cancers, aggressive cancers, autoimmune problems, uh, early onset acute presentation psychiatric problems like schizophrenia and acute dementia and acute uh, uh, depression. Um, autoimmune problems throughout the body, just suddenly, you know, major, horrible, difficult, you know, lesions, blisters, boils. Uh, there's a lot of skin problems that can happen. If they've got all of that, you've got yourself two, you know, basic clusters. You've got a control group and a study group. And that's what pharma is trying to erase. They're trying to push all this garbage into everyone's body so there is no one to compare it to. And they can just say, well, this is the new normal. Everybody gets cancer when they're 22. Didn't you know that? Come on, cardiac arrest at age eight. Who hasn't had that happen in their neighborhood? And that's the, un, you know, that's the biological objective of pushing all of those products. So stay grounded, gather um, the things that you need that you really can speak to, keep your arguments simple and calm and have compassion for people that are hypnotized by the shadows on the wall, or they're terrified and they, they hear what's going on around them and they just won't take their eyes off of the picture. 
Um, that's who we need. We need to have compassion for them in ways that they didn't have compassion for us. That's called turning the other cheek. Um, and it's the same thing why I am telling um, generally about 99% heterosexual audiences about the horrors of the biowarfare work that turned into HIV AIDS um, in, you know, and to communities that were making jokes about it all during the eighties and into the nineties before their compassion really kicked in. I don't, I, I am not going to carry resentment about that kind of energy, that kind of karma into this moment. I want every one of you to benefit from anything we can learn from that era and use it to help in convincing a loved one not to get a vaccine product, to learn and understand where you can find out more about products so that you have your own real practical understanding of what in the world that thing is that they want to put in your body and what it might lead to in your health. Those are the kind of tools that I'm hoping this research will will uh, amount to for folks that are listening. Absolutely. When you're saying all of those things about, oh, you know, the eight-year-old that's having uh, basically a heart attack and all of that stuff, it, make, it makes me wonder about their their excellent play on words all the time if that's really the new normal. Um, if that was the underlying gold behind that is um, just get everybody injected and um, make that the new normal, all of these extreme health conditions. I try to rely on my senses a lot. And I'm really grateful that uh, a lot of times I've been able to step back and just say, you know, my senses don't tell me that um, this is happening or that this is something that just happens naturally. Um, even the AIDS story, oh, is a hunter and he cut his hand and it got the, the chimp blood on him and so on and so forth. I mean, that's just as kind of ridiculous as the bat soup. There's documented evidence about um, the exploring uh, spelunking in China and them trying to getting the bats out and uh, what they wanted to do with the virus. And they wanted to make it transmissible to humans. Um, now, whether that's true or not, that sounds more true than bat soup. I've seen articles trying to blame new emerging novel pathogens on melting glaciers. They're like, oh, yep, there were germs up in the up in the snow. Somehow they got up into the ice, you know, horrible pathogens, and now they're trickling down. So we should expect to see them, you know. That's that's the kind of craziness that I think um, I retweeted I, I, that. Um, oh, did you? I, did you? <laughs> yes, I or I saw it like probably um, when I just opened up Google. I'll never really click on the articles if I'm being honest. I'll just screenshot the headline, and I'm like, I don't even want to know what's inside of it. Whatever's inside of this article, I don't want it in my brain. But here, you guys should look at it. <laughs> yep, yep. Somebody, please look at this. I'm covering my eyes. Um, so I'm I'm going to do one last thing here with the with the formal presentation material, and that's do a quick. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to name I've got a table for those of you listening, a table of recommended reading. And I've got the author and the name of their their major book or publication. And I'm going to name mm, not every single one of them, um, but a few and just give a, a brief like one or two bullets of why is their work so important. Um, and then I'm going to make a recommendation 
uh, of a couple of folks that I think you should really try to get onto your podcast um, that can that can bring you other pieces of this overall biowarfare apparatus. That's what we're looking at. Is a bi- remember when we were kids and we were allowed to go to um, get the fireworks before Fourth of July. And if our parents let us do it more than 24 hours before the 4th of July, we inevitably would shoot something off we weren't supposed to. The same temptation persists in people who deal with weapons, whether those weapons use springs and gears and metal or whether those weapons are uh, retroviruses. And um, that's an unfortunate psychological reality and risk of having all of the war colleges that we've got and all of the uh, sort of hazy, blurry, are they a government agency? Are they a nonprofit? Things like DARPA and DIRTA. And who in the world is actually administering and governing the ethics and the legality and the common sense of the things that they get into? That's, you know, the, that's really what we're, we're, that's the real picture. If you want to say that's the deep state, yes, it's the deep state, but you should call those individual pieces by what they are and understand where they all sort of fit together. So here we go. We're going to do a quick, a quick ring around the recommended reading. Uh, I recommend Michael Gold. His book is A Conspiracy of Cells. The reason is because it will, it will inform you about public health and vaccines and cell culture safety in a way that few things will. Len Horowitz, I'll just mention him again, Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola, I believe the best single source to tie together many of the complex topics that we've talked about in this hypothesis. And he includes full original photocopies of a great number of the evidentiary items. You don't have to go to the library. He brings the difficult, rare ones right to you, and you can see it for yourself. Uh, Ed Hooper wrote The River, and The River is uh, now available free. If you go and look up Ed Hooper, uh, AIDS Origins, I think is the title of his website, but just look up Ed Hooper. You can find that he has open sourced his book. It's massive. He largely turns away from the U.S. biowarfare topic. He does an excellent job of anthropology of AIDS in Africa. Ed Hoslam, a native Louisiana, he is still around. Uh, you can go out to YouTube and find Dr. Mary's monkey. He's been interviewed a great number of times since he wrote the book. Uh, there's more stuff about biowarfare. I've mentioned a couple of these items. Okay, here's one that I think is probably should be the top of your list. This is a mother who has a personal story about Lyme, Lyme disease and ticks. And her book is Bitten, written in 2017. I've had the honor of being on a round table with Chris Newby, Chris with a K, Chris Newby writes Bitten. And I would go out and get her book this minute. She writes in a voice that everyone can approach and understand. She writes from the perspective of a patient and a mother who kind of fell down her own rabbit hole with this. And I do not want to take a bit of her excellent, excellent work away from her. I think she should be your number one, uh, you know, put her on top of the list, get Chris Newby on. She's, she's an excellent uh, uh, researcher and a mind and a storyteller and her work speaks for itself. You'll see. 
Um, and then there are some others here on the recommended reading that are just excellent about putting together the, the mixture of contamination of things in public health, like vaccines, uh, and the known effects and causes on public health of those contaminations, and how there's been an, uh, a real stubborn, horrible uh, resistance to really fixing those problems. It might mean we don't have vaccine products of any type for a long time. Or it might mean that pharmaceutical companies might have to start over with the production process and not use things like LNPs, which are currently being explored as to potentially that goo around the spike particle as a potential component or a trigger in uh, neurologic problems. That's the, those are the papers that are hitting right now as we speak, and we'll, we'll find out more about it. Um, but you know, there may, we just may have to do without sticking needles in our arms for a while and see how we fare. Uh, but you know, that's, that's really what this comes down to is we need to call a halt to practices that have pretended that they are safe and effective that have bypassed all of the evidence that actually came from real testing or the requirement to do testing and have that information be available to the public and the way that they've captured and controlled the vaccine reporting system the vares reporting system in the united states if you call them up for help you do not get the nih you get an attorney you get a pharmacology attorney. I haven't seen the schedule. Who works Monday? Is it Merck? Is it Pfizer? Is it AstraZeneca? But when you call to report a vaccine injury, you get the attorney that will immediately begin attempting to build a method of escaping liability for said injury. It is the most unbelievable Ouroboros, you know, the snake eating its own tail. Um, but those are some of the things that I, you know, I want you to take away from this and consider. And uh, don't worry about being a scientist. Worry about where you can get your hands on this big subject and help protect your loved ones, help get a sense of critical thinking into their minds because you can't force them to drink. You can only hopefully make them thirsty for this. Um, and, and we can save some more lives. Absolutely. Thank you for the rundown and the recommendations. I did take some additional notes on that, and I will try to post your recommended reading list if that comes with all of the other information that we've discussed here today. Um, I wanted to ask in regards to this research in particular, having found everything that you do have with this research, are you going to be continuing um, just keeping an eye on more and more evidence that's coming out. Um, do you continue to expand on this? And is there any other area of interest that you have your finger on? So um, I told you at the beginning that I'm a multidisciplinary investigator. So I have swum under the lanes today of autoimmune disease. I focus on that. I care about it. And I think that it has a a piece. It's like a branch in the tree of this story. I care about cancer. We've talked extensively about that. Um, and I'd say the only other area that really I, I've got a good chance of knocking it out of the park with pretty much anybody in, in a discussion based on evidence. And I mean now evidence over time, 25 years of evidence about disease trends is the influence of GMOs and glyphosate on human health 
on the reproductive health of women because of that autoimmune function uh, and a host of uh, conditions, you know, serious disorders that can arise because of the chemical, the ongoing biochemical process of what the chemicals and the, the BT gene do to your body. So we would summarize that by saying GMOs and glyphosate. That's where I think there's a very important discussion. Um, I had a great uh, spaces with Apothecarol on uh, on Twitter. And we we had, I think it's about a three hour space. We had a real good uh, run. So I'll go ahead and repost that um, and um, people can pick that up. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, here's my handle. I'm at pizza pickles per with one R, pizza pickles per. And there's a uh, space cat. Uh, that's my that's my little avatar. Um, so you're welcome to look at things on my timeline. I try to be apolitical. Once in a while, I'll poke the ribs of somebody, but I'm a political centrist. So I hopefully shouldn't, you know, rub your fur the wrong way. And you've heard the things that I really care about. Aside from really fun pet pictures and beautiful photography that I retweet, I retweet a whole bunch of science. And I try to help feed the community with the cutting edge stuff so people can stay sort of up to speed. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I've heard some of the conversation about um, the glyphosates and GMO. And I just want to say right now that I would love to have you back when you have time to talk about that topic, because that is something um, that we've touched on here on the podcast before, um, and something that definitely interests my sister and I a lot. Uh, When it comes to vaccines, I will say that only currently presently over the past few years, did I really start to take more of an interest in it? Um, And it's really just because it was being forced. Um, I was very happy prior to that feeling like it was my choice. Um, Here in Louisiana, we do have pretty good exemption laws. And um, if my kids don't need to be vaccinated, all I have to do is write a note to the nurse. And um, I sign a little paper that just says basically, um, if there's an outbreak, you know, I'll do my best to keep keep her safe. It's not any responsibility to them. Um, and so I felt very happy and content with that. It wasn't until things started being forced that I said, wait a second, what's going on? And I wanted to look into, um, you know, what was in it? What are they hiding? And I mean, I just already knew that the... <laughs> basically the entire medical, um, you know, establishment was just very, again, this nefarious, just evil and not something that I really wanted to be a part of. Um, but I do love learning about the true history and medical science of it. And I definitely genuinely appreciated what was presented here today. I think it's always a pleasure to be in the same space as you. Um, and I'm very glad to have met you and thank you again for coming on the show today. We appreciate you. Well, I appreciate uh, the platform that you afford, and I uh, hope that uh, we stimulate some good conversations with other investigators and scientists for you as we move forward. Um, This is the place where the rubber meets the road, and I really respect and appreciate your request to simplify and summarize. It's really difficult at moments 
when your head is so saturated with all these names and events and dates and details, and then you add in all the scientific jargon and you try to, um, you try to tell that as a clear story to people, it's really easy to get too far out over your skis. And uh, I know you don't do a lot of snow, snow skiing, <laughs> yeah, but that means you're getting a little, you know, you're out there, you're leaning too far forward. Uh, and uh, it's, it's great that you helped me bring it back to more grounded language and, and simpler concepts and bringing those other researchers in will help people flesh out for themselves. What is this underlying problem? Um, where does it all sort of connect? What are the mechanics of it? And where can I make a difference? Where where should I be vigilant as a person, as a parent, as a citizen, as a, as a member of a state citizenry, things like that? Um, and, you know, people, some people will just watch and hope that others will champion the good work. Others, like you and I, roll up our sleeves and we try to encourage others. It's It's this that what you're doing right now is what gives people tools to move from one side of that line to the other. And I just can't thank you enough. Before you go, hit follow and share with a friend. Wake up to a new episode of Louisiana Sister Squad podcast every Tuesday.